Hi, welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be running through some of the most recent history games we've been playing, including Crusader Kings 3, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and Call of Duty Cold War. We'll wrap things up today with a discussion of the upcoming Game Awards, which air tonight, and look ahead to our own annual History Game Award podcast next week. And to help me wade through all this material, and to update us on Munster's conquest of the medieval world, I've got John Hardy on the line. John, how are you? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm very, very thankful that this semester, the semester from hell, is coming <laughs> to an end. I gave my last final today. It's the end of that class. I've Woo, just got grading to awesome. do this weekend, and I'm just super thankful to be done with everything. How about yourself? Uh, I'm thankful as well. I'm grateful that um, everyone I know is healthy, that uh, our campus, you know, we had people on campus. Of course, you guys did as well, students, right? Um, uh, we had we had some positive cases and stuff, but everyone seems to be relatively healthy. And uh, yeah, it's good. I wasn't teaching this semester, though, so I actually have this kind of guilt. I was going to say survivor's guilt, that wouldn't be appropriate, um, but I have guilt. Um, but I was coaching the esports team, which turned out to be... I have new respect for people who coach anything at division three <laughs> level schools let's put it that way that's uh, i will not be complaining about our athletics coaches again in the near future <laughs> um, but it was a wonderful experience it was just very time consuming. yeah yeah so i was teaching uh, i was doing uh, blended classes which means uh half the class was in person and then the other half or half the sessions i should say were in person half these sessions were online and it is the most that i've worked as a professor since I first started, you know, back in the first year of teaching where essentially you're writing the lecture the night before, um, you know, and that's a lot of work. But now with many years under my belt, uh, this is by far been the most difficult semester. And it's because of that weird structure where, you know, I've got to prep for an in-person lecture, but then also record that lecture and then post it online for the students who couldn't be there because of social distancing. And then I've got a plan for online assignments, which everybody does at the same time. But then some people are out because of COVID restrictions, yada, yada, yada. And mm -hmm. it was just a lot. And uh, I think my plan for next semester where I'll be doing blended again, I am going to scale things way back um, because I do appreciate having a job. I do appreciate uh, this new job that I've got. Uh, but at the same time, I am not being paid enough for this. <laughs> like it is way too much work. Well, I, I uh, you'll have to give me some tips because I'd be teaching blended classes in the spring. And yeah, I mean, the challenge, as you've already experienced and my colleagues are all experiencing is, you're, you know, you're not teaching three or four classes, you're teaching six or eight, basically. Yes. Yep. And it's like everything else in our job, right? It's like, <laughs> if you actually care enough to do the job properly, um, it's a really hard job. Mm -hmm. um, if we were these caricatures of people who don't care at all and just kind of show up and talk and leave and, you know, give everybody an A. That sounds like a sweet gig, but then, you know, it's that bloody morality and sense of obligation to people, you know, what are you yeah. going to do? Yeah. Um, I am looking forward to next semester largely because I feel like I've got a good understanding of how to teach during a pandemic now. Uh, but at the same time, I'm even more looking forward to this month of winter break that I've got ahead of me where I don't have any major responsibilities. So... It'll be nice, and uh, I deserve it. I'm sorry to yeah. say, but I really deserve it this year. It's tough. It's tough, and I, I'm, 
you know, there's so many reasons to look forward to the post-vaccinated world and everything, but our jobs will be so interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of like the first year students this year when it's like, no, that's not how things work. It's like, oh, can I just get a video of the lecture? No. <laughs> it's like, I'm not doing that, man. Yeah. But, you know, it'll be, but it'll be, they'll be happier. You know, we're a highly residential college here. So there were none of the, you know, a big part of a college like Centre is the parties. And, you know, like all that kind of smaller arts colleges, all that kind of social life. And they couldn't mm-hmm. do any of that. You know, mm-hmm. we, I had a first year, I have a first year on the esports team. And um, it was only through chatting to him that I realized, oh, God, this is hard being a first year because I think back to being in college and I was like, there's a party and I really want to go, but I'm kind of afraid to go on my own. You seem okay. You want to go with me? And that's that that becomes your friend, you know, and maybe your best friend for like the first two years of college. And they haven't had any of that. Yeah. And uh, so it, it sucks. And, and, you know, teaching blended hasn't been fun. And then I don't know about your experiences, Bob, maybe you. Uh, but my colleagues have been telling me it really depends on the students. Some students have thrived. Yes. Yeah. And some students have not thrived. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard. Well, it's just like any other class, you know, it, it depends on, you know, a per class basis and then a per student basis, how well mm-hmm. they do. So, um, yeah. Uh, well that, I think that does it. That's enough for the pandemic <laughs> talk. Uh, I hope, uh, you know, wherever you're listening to this, uh, whether it's, uh, um, you know, on the road or, uh, at work, uh, or at home. I hope you're staying safe. Um, I hope the pandemic has, uh, uh, treated you, uh, well, it's, it's treated everybody terribly, but hopefully it hasn't afflicted you too terribly. Um, and, uh, let's talk about some history games, John, let's get let's down do to it. business. Let's so I wanted to check in with you first. Uh, you mm-hmm. have been playing, uh, Crusader Kings three over the past mm-hmm. few months and we had done kind of a quick episode uh, when the game had first come out, kind of discussing your initial reactions. And I'm wondering, now that you've gotten uh, a few months under your belt, now that you've gotten maybe a few dozen hours uh, with the game, uh, what are you feeling like with CK3 now? Is it kind of met your expectations, exceeded it? What do you think? Um, I think it's met my ridiculously sky-high expectations. I cheat and answer both. Um, I'm really happy with the game. I think they've done a fantastic job. I think that um, it's kind of weird, especially when you first boot it up, it feels so similar to Crusader Kings 2. Mm-hmm. Like, it's nicer looking, like it's prettier, the graphics are better, but it feels really similar. But then you start to kind of unpack that a little bit. And Crusader Kings 2 began as this game with a very specific time window and you more you, we were restricted to Europe. That was kind of the, that was the whole premise of the game. And CK2 went on to become this monstrosity of DLCs where eventually you could never really control China like you can in other Paradox games, but you could communicate with them. Certainly you could have Indian um, kingdoms and things like that. And kind of that idea of scope is in CK3 from the very start. So vanilla CK3 has all those things. And it's not just papered over like you can be an African nation, for example. And the African nation will most likely have a clan system of government as opposed to the feudal type of government that, for example, the Irish kingdoms have. But then the Scandinavians also have a clan system of government. So they've done some nice little things there, I think, to kind of try and, you know, acknowledge the reality. These are different types of systems with while doing their best to avoid kind of, I guess, judgmental or, you know, um, generalization kind of things in that sense. So, um, if you were being uncharitable, and I think it wouldn't be fair, your first impression could be, oh, cool, they took where CK2 was after like $200 worth of DLC and 10 years development and overhauled it and made it look nice and now it's a fun game. But I think the, 
what I found, and it's a great tribute to the game, I think, is I was about 30 hours or so in when I started to really kind of, it started to, oh, this is starting to click. Um, some of the things they've done that have worked. And I think um, an example I'll give, which is in the video we're going to put on the channel as well, is uh, there's a thing you can do in the game. It's called a hook. And CK2 didn't have this. And in CK3, it's a hook and it's a completely, it's just a video game thing. Like it's not, you know what I mean? There's no attempt to really, dr I mean, it is a metaphorical hook on someone. So for example, my spy discovers that my vassal is having an affair. And I can, there's a couple of things I can do and I can choose to expose him immediately, which will, you know, make me look very good and make him look bad or maybe give me a chance to take his land away from him. Or I can gain a hook um, and I can use that hook at a later date. Um, and they expire, most of them expire eventually. So the idea is that, you know, me telling everyone you cheated on your wife 25 years ago, no one's actually going to care. But if I tell them f it was five years ago, they are going to care. Um, and so I can have this hook for a while and I can use it for all kinds of things. I can use it to just, frankly, just extort you for money. I can use it to renegotiate our vassalage contract so that you give me more tax over a certain period or give me more troops or whatever, um, or whatever the case might be. And that's kind of the most um, abstract example of what they've done. But what they have done is in CK2, you had a lot of personal interaction, which is kind of the whole point of the game. And some of it was your imagination. Some of it was working around mechanics. And they brought all that stuff to the forefront now. So, you know, for a while, could, you know, my Irish kingdom was going quite well. And one of the reasons it was going well is that I had seduced the um, Duchess of Lancashire and she had quite a lot of troops. So she decided to mess with me, but she didn't mess with me because we were having a, a passionate affair. Um, and then one of my vassals approached me and kind of said, I found out about you two. And so he had a hook on me and they'll use hooks on you and all this kind of stuff. So, and you can, you can have... Um, friendship schemes to become friends of the characters you can sway them um there's so many different kinds of things you can do the religion system is more robust and more interesting it's easier to just create your own religion or convert i currently have a very strange irish kingdom that is part catholic part muslim part um lollard which is kind of a christian sect type thing um and all these things are happening and it's just this wonderful chaos you get in a paradox game um but it, it works really well so i think that personal that that interaction between characters including the player character is working better than ever and then it's just it's just an easier game they mm -hmm. did lots of nice little housekeeping stuff so war is less opaque you actually know what's going on most of the time um you have a sense of why things are happening the game is much better at telling you why certain parts of the map suddenly changed color and this might all sound like greek to someone who never played ck2 but that would happen in ck2 and my advice to people was just make your peace with it and move on you'll never know what's, you'll never know why that happened and ck3 is much better it's chinatown so yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so i think paradox you know this is something they've clearly decided to do as a developer which is they've chosen you know to try and to, to, to broaden their audience. And Imperator Rome was a, was a very successful game in this regard. I'd also recommend Imperator Rome. But I think CK3 takes it a, even a step further. Um, and if, like I've said this before, but if you've never played a Paradox game, I think Shadow Kings 3 would be a great place to start. And it really hits, Bob, all those things you and I like about these games, which is really all about agency. Anything can happen in these mm. games. Um, and, and things do happen. So like, for example, yeah, the western half of Ireland is Muslim now, 150 years into my game. Um, but the way that the backstory to that makes sense in the context of my game. Um, and, and people do crazy things because, you know, it was the medieval period. Yeah. So.
you well, know, sounds, that they were doing crazy things. Yeah, that all sounds really promising. And, you know, it certainly sounds promising to people who've played a Paradox game before, but I like the way that you make it sound like it's approachable by somebody who maybe hasn't had any experience mm-hmm. with Paradox games. And I'm wondering, and this is kind of a inside baseball question for you and me, but uh, do you see this game being useful in a classroom setting? Do you see this as, you know, say something you could use potentially in your history and games class at center college, for instance? Right. That's a really great question. Um, I don't know yet is the, is my honest answer. Um, it's certainly the closest paradox has come yet. You know, I always have a couple of students who say, can we do a paradox game? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I would like to, but you know, the thing is that you guys and me, we all understand how these mechanisms work. And Bob, as you know, and anyone listening who's ever been, not even in a classroom, but in any group of more than 15 people knows, trying to get everyone on the same page with something is difficult, mm-hmm. um, especially something complex. So it's why we do Sid Meier's colonization in that class a lot, because it's pretty quick to grasp and it's, it's very thematically heavy and there's lots of stuff you can get into. However, I think there's a real chance in part because, you know, in the act of foregrounding, trying to foreground their mechanics and make them easier for a player to understand and enjoy without having to go and like read three hours of an internet forum. They've also kind of foregrounded mechanics that would be useful to you and me. So for example, um, there's three little tabs at the bottom of the screen, and it's um, uh, including culture and religion. And you can click on the religion tab, and it shows you here are some aspects of your religion. And if you change religion, here's how you will do that, and here's the costs you'll pay. And all that information is foregrounded in a way that even if we weren't playing it with our students, we could play maybe even 10 minutes in front of them or talk them through a particular menu and then ask them, so what do you think of the, of the, of the, of the game designer's choices? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you are Catholic, um, you are theoretically, your, your religion um, prioritizes virtue, which means that you are inclined to look down on someone who is known to have had an affair. Now you might not, depending on your personal characteristics. So you have virtue. You have so, for example, a character who enjoys stepping out on their spouse tends to have a pretty not negative opinion of another person who steps out on their spouse, and all these kind of things. But you could, you know, but you could show the students go right, and and the game is very good at foregrounding. Here's how we understand this religion in our game, mm-hmm. and here are the characteristics of this religion in our game. Um, and you can switch to Islam and then all these other religions and it does the same thing. And so I think that foregrounding would be really useful. So I don't know if I could like give it to students to play for a weekend. Like I would like Civ 6, I do that, you know, yeah, for everyone sure. go play this, you know, go play Civ. I want everyone to do 10 hours of Civ this weekend, you know, or, or the next four days. Um, I don't know if I would do that, but I would feel way more confident pulling up a couple of screens in front of them and talking through why do you think these guys did this? Yeah. And and, and CK2, which I love I loved CK2. It, that that wasn't the same it wasn't really doable with Super yeah. So maybe more kind of a guided experience led by the instructor rather than something that you would just give to the yeah. students on their own. I think so, because I think the strength of the Paradox games is that things happen um unpredictably. Mm-hmm. But it you know, but they can take a long time to happen. So at the moment, for example, I was up three nights ago. I was up till one in the morning, which I rarely do anymore, fighting the Scots to a really hard-fought war to get Ulster back. Ulster uh-huh. is the northern province of Ireland. I was so happy. And then my next game session, the Duke of, um, oh, God, what is it? It wasn't. It's Lothian in north, mid, mid-north England. That son of a gun has allied with several other people, and now he's going to take half of Ulster back away from me. Oh. He's, 
beyond infuriating <laughs> but it's but but it's kind of part of the enjoyment of a game but if you're giving students a game you know and you know that you're getting six hours out of them at best i don't think it's going to translate well mm-hmm. um, but yeah but the guided experience but the game has done such a better you can show them a guided experience yeah this is going to happen let's start a war and see what happens kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah i think about it in terms of giving students reading assignments and I always think about paradox games as kind of being the Michel Foucault readings for the video game world. You know, it's like this is something that can leave you with uh, path-breaking knowledge, and yet it could take a really long time to separate, you know, the important stuff from just the mind-boggling, you know, um, confusion that otherwise reigns in that uh, situation. And like Foucault, you might have like four, three or four people who just love this game you introduced them, or, or enjoy this game you introduced to. Yeah. And out of those four, there's one person where you're kind of thinking to yourself, maybe I shouldn't have introduced this to you. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're never, they've gone down a rabbit hole, they're never coming back. That's right. You know? yeah. yeah. The wool has been pulled from their eyes. But now they're, they're like, everything is a prison. Um, know, they're walking into like, you know, computer labs, decrying people playing civilization. That's How right. could you do this? You yeah. Know? <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, let's transition to another game that is depicting the medieval world, and that is Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Uh, so this is Ubisoft's latest uh, title in the Assassin's Creed series, uh, set in the 9th century in England, uh, where you are taking on the role of a Viking raider and getting up to Viking stuff uh, in England during this time period. And uh, we had done an episode of this. Uh, I, I had done an episode of Guest Scholar. I played maybe about 20 hours of the game. And John, you've been playing it uh, quite mm-hmm. a bit too. So I guess, uh, you know, I I have some complicated feelings about this game, both as a historian, but then also as a big fan of the Assassin's Creed series. And as a historian, I think that, you know, it kind of does similar things to uh, previous games where you know a lot of the kind of major historical elements are mere window dressing you know it's just kind of a basis for a fun action and adventure game in the same mold as like the witcher uh, witcher 3 in particular um, but then there's more troubling aspects you know for instance uh, you know the game doesn't really bring up the subject of slavery uh, which is something that a lot of uh, critics have brought up uh, you know very important part of uh, the Viking Age at this time, uh, particularly with relation to England, but especially with Ireland. And, you know, I think that it's not a huge surprise that that's not a part of the game, largely because um, a lot of history games struggle with this exact same topic. Uh, but still, I think, you know, in this span that I've played, I would have enjoyed a little bit more of a kind of grounding in that topic. And maybe maybe that's something that can come through in the discovery tour mode for this game. Um, but I could see the basis for a lot of historians, and there've been plenty of them online uh, playing this game, you know, bringing up that idea. And it's something that I think uh, this game is not alone in that. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. kind of popular culture that options Viking history has the same sort of problem. Um, you know, the uh, scholars online have brought up uh, things like uh, the How to, How to Train Your Dragon series, which, you know, mm-hmm. of course, this uh, Vikings wearing uh, horned helmets and everything. Uh, but then also, you know, it completely ignores 
you know, the basis for Viking society, uh, by and large. Uh, and then as an Assassin's Creed player, I am, I feel like I've just got a lot of fatigue having played both Origins and Odyssey, which are the previous two games, which are set in kind of the same vein of action-adventure RPG. But, you know, these are just, they're like 50 to 60-hour epics, and they they all have kind of the same escalator of skills and uh, quests, and I don't know, I just, it Valhalla hasn't really grabbed me, and I think it's partly because I'm, I've played so much of these games recently, mm-hmm. but also I think that Valhalla, unlike Odyssey in particular, it doesn't have the kind of same narrative hooks that I was looking forward to, uh, the same narrative hooks that, you know, Odyssey had, I think, in such abundance, where it was a really interesting story with relation to the history, but then also kind of the personal narrative of your player character and what their origins were and um, you know, uh, what, who their family was and, you know, were they going to discover these things? There was an interesting conflict there. Whereas I just feel like Valhalla doesn't necessarily have that. And I feel like the game leans a little bit too much on the kind of exciting nature of the Viking age, you know, raids Mm -hmm. and battles and, (laughs) um, mythology. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I really assumed I was going to play through this game, but I think this might be the first Assassin's Creed game in a very, very, very long time um, that I haven't finished. Hmm. I Yeah, I think that um, I didn't finish Odyssey, or I kind of, I actually got very far into Odyssey, and I think about it, but I felt that Odyssey did a nice job um, of fulfilling that classic Assassin's Creed sweet spot, like Pythagoras, for example, that super cheesy, here's a super famous historical figure who's kind of your friend or has given you missions, and that kind of breezy but still kind of cool, nerdy, cool thing that I always think Leonardo da Vinci in Assassin's Creed 2 is, for me, is the high watermark of that. Yeah. But um, but that was there in Odyssey, and, and I didn't get super far into Valhalla, um, so I assume Bede shows up at some point, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, so I don't know. But that that wasn't really happening. My thing, I mean, I think, so depiction of Vikings is interesting. I always remember this professor when I was an undergraduate who I think was just trying to be entertaining, who was complaining about English historians saying that, um, talking about the Irish and the Vikings, and this particular professor was very eager to point out that the Vikings conquered the English, but they didn't conquer the Irish. Um, but then quickly pointed out that's because the Irish were such a pain in the pain in the behind to deal with. They just kind of raided monasteries and set up all our cities and left after a century. That was his very, you know, not terribly um, authentic take, maybe. But um, <laughs> but he did a nice job of kind of conveying the confusion that was actually happening at this time. And I think from the early parts of the game, I like that aspect of the game. But this is all a bit mad, and there's no, it's not, there's not really a king of England per se, or there kind of is, but. England as a territory is clearly just contestable. Yes. Um, and the Vikings are contesting it. Um, and and it's tough because they're really making an effort, like little things which I think people appreciate and are right to appreciate, like to go a Viking, to use the word Viking as a verb as opposed to a noun, which is technically what it what it should be. And using words like drenger and all these kind of things, I think that people like um, and searching for a kind of authenticity. Um, but like slaves is a good example. I think slaves is a tough thing because... Um, you know, I, I've read things the last few years that kind of, oh, there's so much, how do I put this? So I think that if you want to trash the Enlightenment because slavery happened, I, I think that's a little bit unfair. 
But I've seen people react to that and defend the Enlightenment and other ideas by pointing out slavery has been around a long time, which ignores the fact that slavery, as it happened in North America, or the Americas, I should say, was something gross and new in scale and horrors, which is not to say that slavery wasn't horrid earlier. But you see, everyone listening can see he's struggling with this. But that's the problem. That's why slavery is such a problem. Historians in general struggle with this. It's a real challenge. So... um, I, of course, yes, of course, I can see why they sidestepped it, um, but it's still kind of, it's kind of a, it's a big gap, as it were. Yeah, and, it, I, and I would say to Ubisoft's credit, I mean, out of the more recent, uh, I'd say the last twenty years or so, more recent historical games that have even touched on the issue of slavery, Ubisoft has done that in the Assassin's Creed series. You know, uh, Assassin's Creed Liberation, uh, which mm-hmm. was set in New Orleans. Uh, Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry deals with slavery, and you know when I say deal with slavery, it's it's not like it's giving a uh, historical account of the horrors of slavery in the New World uh, during the 18th and 19th century, not at all. But uh, it is at least bringing it up, you know. And I think in that context, you would kind of hope well they would continue that with um, a game like this, where slavery is an important part of that history um and yet it's kind of missing here and i'm wondering you know of course there could be dlc coming there could be um you know the discovery tour mode that talks about this in detail uh but at the same time it's a it's a bit disappointing that it's not there Mm -hmm. at the beginning and you know i think that the kind of uh you know there's the pedantic issues that you could get into you could get into like oh well the the horses of this time period don't look right in this game. Or, right, right. Um, you know, uh, the the Vikings wouldn't be dressed this way or, you know, the English wouldn't be uh, speaking this way, all this stuff. You know, those are kind of the minute details uh, that I think it's fair to criticize the game for, but, you know, for me it's not right. that important. But when it comes to kind of getting players interested in this history, you would hope that it would represent at least a little bit of the negative aspects of this past. And I think that past Ubisoft games have actually done that somewhat well, surprisingly well, in ways that, you know, even other types of historical fiction haven't, you know, particularly films and TV shows. So, you know, I think, I wonder, you know, is, you know, does this represent a significant shift for the way that they're adapting the past? Or is this just kind of a a one-off issue? Well, I, I think it's an interesting thing because I, I, I keep thinking how we, you know, video games increasingly, like I feel like a few years ago, people like you and me and many others were kind of taking it upon ourselves to say, hey, you know, video games should be in the same conversation as films and movies and so on in terms of how a society is processing an historical um, mm-hmm. event or, or historical memory. And I think there's much less um, convincing needs to happen now. Yeah. Not just, of course, video game players, but for everybody. And so what I see in Valhalla is just yet another example. I don't mean to say that it's not original. That's not what I'm trying to imply. But, you know, there's this understandable, justifiable reaction to the old school horned helmet guys show up and kill everybody. They were effectively evil. They were enemies of Christianity because they robbed the monasteries all the time. Um I think that it, it is important that we have not just an academic but a popular reaction to that. Mm-hmm. So in Valhalla, we get that, and as well that we get the hot and sexy Vikings yeah. of the History Channel show, you know. <laughs> and that's kind of what we're getting. And so, kind of what intrigued me was um, playing Valhalla, and it's like you know, it's funny 
they talk about honor and honor is the center of their culture in a very similar way that you see in Ghost of Tsushima. Mm-hmm. And Ghost of Tsushima got railed across the coals for that by some people. And not, I don't know that it was unfair to do that. I think that Ghost of Tsushima was, unfortunately, it tended to kind of sometimes get into this very like, oh, we Japanese, we really care about our honor. It was like, oh, God, it's a bit, you know, cringy. But the Vikings of Valhalla are, the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it's different context because it's, you yeah. know, Middle Ages, Northern Europe versus, um, you know, centuries later, Japan. And, and there's all these histories of the way we talk about these communities. But I just kind of found it intriguing. And then you throw in the kind of the quasi, you know, post-punk hairdos. And there's just kind of, I don't know, it was an interesting, it's a game I want to revisit in the future. But like that tonal stuff to me started to really kind of mix together in ways that are confusing. Mm-hmm. And it's, I hadn't thought of it this way until you brought it up. But yeah, Odyssey just felt way more co- like coherent to itself mm-hmm. than the early, the, the, for me, the first 10 hours of Valhalla did. And it, I felt like Odyssey had so much more momentum uh, mm-hmm. from yes. the story, which I feel like the story in Valhalla is just kind of, I don't really... I don't really understand the stakes. I don't really care about the stakes. And I'm surprised by that because I felt like the narrative in Odyssey was so strong. I felt that the narrative in Origins was pretty strong as well. And, you know, obviously these games all have different development crews, different things that they're looking for and trying to achieve. So, um, you know, it's to each his own, I suppose. You know, I know a lot of people who love this game. Um, but right. For me, I just I think it's a mixture of fatigue and then a little bit of disappointment with how this game has come together and how it's presented, and it kind of leaves me wondering, you know, is this something I'm going to return to during the winter break? I just don't know if I have it in me. Well, I, I for me, it was interesting. Um, I saw people online saying, "Oh, it really takes off once you get to England." I had the actual opposite reaction. I I, mm, I, I felt really, the same way. Really enjoyed. Yeah. The, the stuff set in Norway was really good. And then I got to England. And a lot of this is completely personal, maybe unfair. I tried Ubisoft Connect. I gave it a trial. Um, so you, the, the the monthly fee you pay Ubisoft, you can play all their games, which is interesting. I think if I liked Ubisoft games more, it'd be tempted, although it would really stack up after a few months. So I, like, I played Watch Dogs Legion the same week. And I played five minutes of that, and I was like, I don't like these games anymore, it turns out. <laughs> this is just, I don't want to play any more yeah of these GTA clone games. I just don't want to. I'm not saying it's a bad game. It's just not for me. And then in Valhalla, I got to England. It's like, okay, so now you're going to go and do this mission. And once that mission's done, you'll unlock this building. And then you go and unlock the next building. And then if you get, get these resources, you can upgrade this building. And I just thought, oh my God, I just, I can't do this. And it's not in, I'm not making any sense because I've spent 20 hours in the last two weeks playing Destiny 2. <laughs> Which, you know what I mean? So for those yeah. who don't know, it basically involves shooting people repeatedly to fill imaginary totals of imaginary currencies. Like it's not, so why do I ding Valhalla? I'm not sure, you know, but I, I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in Valhalla, it was like, I, all I could see was this, the next 45 hours yawning ahead of me and just realizing I just don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a bummer because there were lots of things I liked about it. But I, yeah. So for me, I played, I kind of played a mini game in Norway and really enjoyed that yeah. part. I, I really enjoyed the Norway part. And then, then that part also brings up the idea of slavery in mm-hmm. this context. And then it's just kind of dropped once you get to England. And I mean, I get it, uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, d- nobody cares about my criticism, honestly, but uh, <laughs> especially the developers, but I don't know. I just think like from my perspective, it might be worth the risk 
from a development side to go into those kind of difficult topics. And I can see conversely why they wouldn't do that. Like there's plenty of pitfalls uh, to run into, but I don't know. I just, I feel like the game is missing a narrative hook. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if maybe adding more historical detail to it could have actually helped in that regard. And it's something I've thought about a lot the last few days with the with the um, release of Cyberpunk 2077, which we might talk about in a few minutes, is um, it, the video game landscape is so interesting now because you can have three people or one person just like make a game, you know, um, and and a small group like that can be agile in a way that like with Valhalla, with any game like that, once you get past a certain, it's such a huge project. Like if you're building a building, you know, on a college campus and you're like, oh, it'd be great to have a coffee shop. It's like, well, it's too late to do that. You know, if you, if we'd had that discussion, a coffee shop in the new library, but the library is all done now. We could put in a crappy coffee shop where we were going to have a storage room, but it's too late now to do a good one. And these big games are similar to that. Like you get to a point where, we're, we're kind of on track now, guys, yeah. you know, like, and, uh, you know, it's not that we're against new ideas coming in, but you, you can't expect them to be implemented because I just can't, I can't divert the energies of 25 people to make that yeah. happen. It's like piloting and, a yeah. ship, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's not like you've got the responsiveness of a plane or a car. It's like, you know, when you're piloting a huge ship, you've got to predict your moves well before uh, you get to the point. Uh, so, yeah, it's... It's frustrating. I think I might give it another try, but I don't know if I'll finish it. And that's that's amazing because I am somebody who has mm-hmm. who's played these games um, since their inception, basically. And uh, yeah, it's that's that's remarkable. One thing I would say that's been very interesting with Valhalla, and I don't know if this is unique to this game in this uh, particular historical setting, uh, or if it's kind of a, a sign of wider trends, but uh, it seems like a lot more historians have been playing this game, this particular game, and talking about it online. Mm-hmm. Just from, you know, anecdotally, of course, uh, from what I've seen on Twitter, uh, from what I've seen in various historical blogs, lots of contact coming from historians discussing the game and discussing how it's interpreting the past. And I think that's really exciting. Um, you know, I wish that it was a better game. Uh, to form the basis of that criticism, but it's still really encouraging to see that criticism coming out. And I think, like you've said, you know, the argument, uh, the old argument that we used to make, you know, five, seven years ago about, hey, we should pay attention to video games. I think scholars are doing that now. And so now it yeah. comes to, well, what do we actually have to say about games? And what do we actually have to say about representing past? But we don't need to make the argument. And, you know, I wonder how much of that is related to scholars changing their opinion or just kind of a new generation of scholars coming up, you know, people our age and younger who are kind of like, they've always played games and it's part and parcel of the type of media that they consume. So I don't know. I don't have an answer, but I think it's exciting. Right. And, and, and social media, I think has helped because you see people like, I I can't remember, I I follow a person on social media. I, I forget. I think he's an archaeologist or something. And, um, he has the fact that he beat Dark Souls is in his Twitter bio, you know, and it's this kind of, and, and there's no other obvious evidence the guy plays video games. And I assume that if you're in graduate school or if you've just got a job and you see that, you're like, oh, okay, so I can talk about it. As you and I both know, Bob, sometimes it's graduate students doing it in their own minds, but sometimes it's real. There's a sense of like, well, I need to seem like a serious person. Yes, yes. Um, 
And it turns out you can seem like a serious person who also plays video games. Yeah. That's totally, That's totally awesome. fine. Which is awesome. Which is super cool. Yeah. And then I we should shout out to, you know, Value as well. The Archeo Gaming kind of organization do lots of great work. I think they they're coming at it from a very specific kind of angle. Like we're kind of archaeologists of game worlds kind of stuff. And the stuff they do is really cool. And of course, your history spawned a lot of people now. I think who are just giving people places they can go to. Yeah. To kind of hear people talk about it, and I think that has to that helps. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, uh, the game I think that has two colons uh, in its title. Uh, so, Speaking of academia. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, Foucault would be proud. Um, yeah, so uh, Call of Duty Cold War. So this is a game uh, that I played over the Thanksgiving break, and I am going to record an episode next week uh, with Joe Parrott and uh, Chris Dietrich, uh, two uh, UT uh, graduates, uh, and also uh, the two guests that we had on for the previous episodes on Black Ops 1 and Black Ops 2. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing their response to the recordings that I made of the game and just kind of giving general thoughts on the game that I played. It is very short. Uh, I think it took me about five hours to beat. So even by Call of Duty standards, that is pretty short. And of course, in the first blush of reviews for this game, there was a lot of uh, content uh, regarding the depiction of uh, Ronald Reagan in the game and, uh, you know, kind of discussing uh, the ways in which this game seemed as though it was promoting Reagan and his record on the Cold War. Um, you know, despite, you know, manifest problems with Reaganism, uh, Reaganomics, uh, Iran-Contra, Black Ops in the 1980s, etc. But what I would say, um, again, and I'm not a huge expert on this time period, you know, uh, Chris and Joe are, so that's why I'm going to talk to them. But uh, there is, I would say there's a lot of controversy about this game, but there really isn't much there. Actually, um, yeah. Reagan, for instance, shows up in uh, the first hour of the game and he talks for maybe four or five minutes. And then his kind of uh, there's footage of his inauguration going on. The game takes place in uh, 1981. So the first year he's in office. Um, and so there's footage of his inauguration that plays kind of in the background in several moments. Uh, but otherwise, he's not really a big presence in the game. He's not really discussed. And, you know, I guess you could criticize the game in the sense that uh, by dint of having him represented in the game and by having a game about Cold War Black Ops from an American standpoint, that this game promotes, you know, uh, extra legal uh, uh, special forces work by the United States and promotes their kind of regime change and... Um, you know, acts of terror on the developing world during the 1980s. And sure, I think you could say that, but that's something that Black Ops 1 and 2 did, right? <laughs> and so what I think is interesting about this game, and the game itself, I think, um, gameplay-wise, it's exactly what you expect. Um, it's a lot of uh, left trigger, right trigger, you know, left trigger to aim, right trigger to fire. Um, so the ancient art of left trigger, right trigger is still well represented. This, the game you've been playing for 20 years is still this game. 
Uh, so there's nothing really new with regards to gameplay. The mission structure's the same, essentially, as the past pre, you know, past five, six Call of Duty games. Um, but in terms of the controversy you know, directed towards this game, I think what's interesting isn't so much this game itself, because I don't think this game actually does anything that terribly controversial. I think Black Ops 1 or 2 were way, way, way more controversial, especially Black Ops 2, which had Oliver North, um, essentially a convicted war criminal, uh, as a uh, an advisor on the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those games, I feel, are way more controversial. But what I think is different about this situation now is that games journalism, games criticism has gotten to a different level than it was when Black Ops 1 and 2 came out. Uh, so I think Black Ops 1 came out in 2010. Black Ops 2, I think, was 2012. And, you know, back then there was a little bit of discussion about, you know, oh, isn't this really weird to have Oliver North in this game? Uh, but now, uh, with the ways in which I think games criticism has really advanced and matured in the past 10 years, you're now getting these games coming out and they're not getting a free pass anymore. Um, you know, there's a lineup of critics who are ready to engage with these issues and write on them really well. And, you know, it kind of comes to this situation where, you know, scholars like me would be interested in discussing this and criticizing this game. And now those type of people, the type of people who would share my mindset are games journalists. And I think that that is kind of a really encouraging aspect of this game uh, in particular. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for me personally at this point to be living through society's reconstruction of the 1980s. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, when, Bob, when you and I were kind of heading into college. um, The 1980s, by the way, were 20 years ago, despite what anybody else will have. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. In in my head, the 1980s, you know, you know, it was the, it was the, it was the wave of music before the current wave of music. That's correct. Because I, you know, in my, in my head. So like I remember going into college and bell bottoms and flares were coming in a big way because we were reliving the 70s and that's kind of what we were doing. And then 10 years later, when I was in my mid-20s, late-20s, it felt like that's when the 80s thing was being relived. But that was really more of a kind of a fashion wave. This is the British Isles I'm talking about. I was still in Britain and Ireland at this particular time. Um, But now we're at a point where, okay, the 80s is 40 years ago, and you're getting lots of interesting kind of explorations of those ideas. And so for me, there's been some great writing. There's been writing on it that hasn't been that great, in my opinion. Um, And some of that is because of this lightning rod thing about Reagan. Um, And I don't think Reagan is perfect by any stretch of imagination, um, or was perfect. Um, but I, it's been interesting to see kind of displaced feelings that maybe are directed at the current outgoing president mm. suddenly being targeted mm-hmm. to Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I'm not here to say that um, the Contras and stuff were okay, um, but if people are interested in, like, in, in, in that, like you say, extra legal stuff and everything else showing up in culture... Um, they should totally bring the Delta Force movies into this. And that whole, not just Delta Force movies, which were famous Chuck Norris movies, where they went back and effectively or, relitigated or Vietnam. Missing, and, missing in action mill, or films, missing so. in action, right, yeah. exactly. Braddock, right, the one yeah. that it's called, yeah. Um, Rambo 2, which is a very oh, weird yeah. movie. Yes. Where, you know, um, so, so or that's, Rambo 3, too. Right, yeah, right, where he just, you know, how, how are we going to win Afghanistan? We'll make a movie where Rambo wins, you know, flies over there and wins it. Fights know, with the Mujahideen. Yes, yes. There's a scene in that film where I think he uh, 
he I forget what happens exactly, but he basically looks out of this uh, cavern or cave or something, and it's the entire Soviet army, and the Rambo beats them. It's like most <laughs> it's ultimate '80s wish fulfillment. Yeah. Um. So so that's fascinating for me. Um. But I think your point is actually an excellent one. Um. Which is that people just want to engage. I think some of those people want to engage in ways. Back when Gamergate was in full flow, and that was not a very pleasant time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kotaku would be targeted by some of those people and all this kind of stuff. And game writers are being accused of stuff that, frankly, they just flat out weren't doing. Yeah. Um, whereas now, some game writers choose to get really upfront about their how they're choosing to analyze something politically. And I think that you can take it or you can leave it. Um, but I think it's a sign. I think it's a sign of health. Yes. Um, in video game criticism. That yeah. Pe- people are doing it. You know? Yeah. I'm really excited to read it. And, you know, I think that, I think my major disappointment is that this criticism has been based on a game that I don't think is that terribly interesting or mm-hmm. necessarily that controversial. But at the same time, I think it's incredible that it, that kind of criticism does exist. Um, and uh, I'll be very curious to see what uh, uh, Chris and Joe make of it. Uh, we're recording... Uh, sometime next week and I've uh, shared with them not only footage that I've taken from the game but then also some of the criticism uh, that it's been uh, been written about uh, at, in places like uh, Bullet Points and Kotaku uh, mm-hmm. and uh, IGN I think had an article about it as well so yeah it's I, I'm pretty excited you know it's kind of like I get to share with my fellow historians who don't play games you know Chris and Joe I don't think play games at all um, but I get to share with them like, oh, hey, look, you know, games criticism has gotten pretty good. Whereas before, you know, when we did the review for um, Black Ops 1 and 2, I don't think there was any kind of major games criticism that I thought was worth sharing, you know, um, right. that would kind of help them understand where players were coming at with this particular game. And so, yeah, it's it's great. But I, I wish the game was better uh it's just kind of it you know if you played a call of duty game you've played call of duty black ops colon cold war um right doesn't really doesn't really do anything doesn't upset the apple cart but maybe it's not a surprise you know this is the launch um call of duty title on new consoles and usually those are not the best call of duty games uh you know to the extent that there are great call of duty games so um yeah, but still, uh, it's it's interesting to see. I, th- I think another thing that's interesting is just the enduring like nowness or the obsession with new things in the video game community as a whole. We're like revisiting the previous backup games is something that you and I would do, but it's not. You know, if somebody at Kotaku or or Polygon chose to write on that, it might get some eyeballs, but it wouldn't get as many as covering the game that just came out. Yeah. Um, which is not necessarily. I mean, you could argue the same is true for films as well. To be fair, um, what's interesting in video games is that at least maybe it's we're just getting older, more tolerant of it. But like the the gaps in graphic fidelity are not as glaring as they were. Mm-hmm. So like asking someone to go back and play the original Tomb Raider is like, I mean. You know, you have to want to do that. Um, whereas you can, you could now refer someone to a game from like 2012, and it's, it's not some big glaring kind of a thing. So I wonder to what extent we can start to think of, you know, we're historians, so you know, you and I are like this. How can we kind of build up these kind of retrospectives going back at least a few years? Because um, I'm, I'm a snob. I would like us, I would like video games to get more of that novel literature kind of angle of criticism um, than kind of 
a, a pop film kind of angle yeah. it currently has, which is not for a lack of effort. A lot of effort out there to write great stuff. Don't get yeah. me wrong. and Not meant as a criticism of people. Yeah. But maybe kind of uh, critiquing a game based on the wider canon of mm-hmm. yeah. you know collected works up to that point, which is something right. that historians live for. Like that is historiography <laughs> in a right, nutshell. Exactly. That, is, that is what we are here for, literally. And, you know, it's funny you bring up that kind of topic because I'm in the midst right now uh, of uh, playing a text adventure game that was published in 1985. And I'm playing <laughs> it on DOSBox on my computer and it is related to this particular topic with Reagan and his depiction in video games and I don't know what I'll do with it but it is it has been a big struggle because I'm somebody who surprise surprise was born in the 80s uh, and somewhat familiar with these types of games and how they work and yet I've had to look up so many FAQs in order yeah. to kind of understand how to play this game um, and I couldn't imagine passing this game on to somebody who doesn't even have that frame of reference to understand what computer inputs were like, you know, when you didn't have uh, even a joystick, right? It was just the keyboard. Uh, So, yeah, made me feel really old. I am, I am really old, to be honest. Uh, So, John, you got anything else that you've been playing? I I haven't really played anything else. I I went back to Hades last night just as kind of a a palate cleanser after playing Call of Duty. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I haven't played any new games. And so I'm curious. uh, I know you've just brought up Cyberpunk. I I don't know. Yes. Do you have anything you want to say about that yet? Yeah, I have a little bit to say about it. I I crumbled on that because I... I kind of was doing just fine. Um, I was back into Destiny 2 You were on the wagon, reason. yeah. I was on the wagon, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I was playing Plenty of Crusader Kings 3, which is which is a great game. And, um, and as the week wore on, you know, Cyberpunk is coming out, and I thought, okay, um, it's a big release, and sometimes I get caught up in big releases, sometimes I don't. And I read some interesting articles about it. I loved The Witcher 3, um, and I said to you, Bob, you know, I had some credit on the PlayStation Store, so I was going to get it for my PS4 Slim, which I am now very, very glad I didn't do that. Yes, yeah. The internet is awash with some pretty nasty bugs. Yes, and PS4 just to, just for our listeners, we are recording right now on uh, the 10th of December, uh, so the game has been released. I think it was released this morning uh, for most yeah, people. Was, in the United States, or it was midnight local time for everybody on consoles, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And then it was midnight GMT on PC. Okay. So yeah. last, yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of people have been posting immediately about mm-hmm. the uh, Xbox One and PS4 versions, uh, the last console cycle versions of these games. And uh, the footage is, is rough. And a lot of the reviews that came out, and then some, some people chose to write kind of impressions rather than reviews, which I think was appropriate as well. All of them, including people who liked the game, said this is so buggy and it's mm-hmm. so bad. And like, there's a weird experience where um, my PC, in order to download a 10 gigabyte patch that I think addressed some of these concerns, um, I needed to have 10 gigabytes plus the size of the game free on the hard drive, having already installed the game. And and <laughs> this was not communicated to me. Um, Reddit came to the rescue, basically. Um, uh, so it's lots of weird things. Now, I've been very lucky so far. I've only played the first hour or so. I guess what I would say about it, um, I'm glad I got it so far. Um, the basic gameplay is clicking with me. The gunplay and stuff is is fun. Um, it feels almost like one of the good Fallout games, I mean, recent ones. Um, 
uh, with better gunplay. Um, and I had read, you know, a couple of interesting pieces. Carolyn Pettit, I thought she wrote a, quite an interesting piece for Polygon. That was really um, good. Yeah. Yeah. And she talked a lot, just kind of how she felt about the game. Um, and, and, and for her, some of the issues were issues of representation of trans things and stuff like that. And of course, this has been an issue for a long time now because they released that um, image, was it last year, of, you know, a trans, it's, it's an advertisement from in-game and it's for like an energy drink or something. And it's this kind of grotesque, not, well, when I say grotesque trans person, I don't mean grotesque as in like, like over the top like in the game, this is supposed to over the top representation of a person. And certainly some people felt it was kind of disrespectful and potentially kind of transphobic and things like that. So that's kind of where she was coming in. And, and she's just, for her, it was just, it's, there was disappointment there for her. And she's mm. not the only person to talk about the game this way. And so, and my interest was piqued because for me, what's intriguing to me is that I, I, I'm definitely not a cyberpunk fan, really. I think there's a whole group of people out there who like cyberpunk things um and there's stuff there for you there's certainly graphic novels there's certainly video games and people mention the deus ex games like the last couple of ones they did but there's other stuff as well and they get into this idea of like changing body identities and stuff and cyberpunk has kind of talked that up and some of their marketing in particular has talked about body modifications Mm -hmm. and things um and i think they made a rod for their own back because i've i've it's it's hard to know how how useful that's going to be. My impression going in, for, uh, loading it up last night, it has that tabletop feel to it early on, because it's based on a tabletop game, in that you're effectively kind of rolling a character or you're kind of creating character or picking stats. Then it does that video game thing where it clearly just abandons that idea almost immediately, <laughs> really. Um, and I think how much that bothers you is going to have a really big influence on if you like the game or not. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it didn't bother me. Um, And so I'm enjoying the game. But for me, whereas for Carolyn and others, I think they look at it and they're like, oh, this is just frustrating because this just felt like an opportunity to kind of speculate about the future. That's not what Cyberpunk 2077 is doing. Even though, you know, oh, the Japanese are an international relations threat. The Soviets still exist. This is a future city a la Blade Runner. It really is more about Blade Runner and William Gibson's Neuromancer than anything else. So Mm -hmm. it's just revisiting an idea it was generated in the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, and cyberpunk ideas have been around probably since at least the 60s, depending how you define cyberpunk. But Blade Runner and Neuromancer defined those ideas. Yeah. And if you haven't read Neuromancer, I recommend it, by the way. But when I read it for the first time a couple of years ago, late in the, late in the novel, there's this Rastafarian revolutionary tech guy who shows up and he's got dreadlocks and he talks Yaman and all this kind of stuff. And I was like rolling my eyes so hard, I thought I was going to injure myself until it dawned on me, oh, no, wait this novel invented this trope that I have now seen a hundred times. Gibson invented it. And yeah. that novel invented so much of that stuff. And that's that's how I understand Cyberpunk 2077. It's like, yeah, they're just, they're in that pool. Yeah. Um, but if you wanted it to be something completely new and forward-looking thematically and everything else, yeah, I can see why people are kind of bummed out. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of been an interesting, and going back to our conversation throughout the entire podcast episode, there is this heightened willingness to like get into that kind of an idea of how to think about a game, which I think is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you know, John, I uh, left my job at Louisiana tech. Um, and the last class that I taught was one that I taught for five years, which is called cyber futures. And it's a humanities class that looked at the, you know, the future of cyberspace, but it also looked back on 
you know, the ways in which cyberspace had been imagined going back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And one of the big assignments in that class was uh, a paper assignment in which students went back and looked at uh, Neuromancer, looked at all these uh, previous works, uh, or looked back at films from the 80s and the 90s that looked at the cyber future, what we might be living uh, today. And that was always a really useful exercise because you would have students in there going like, oh, also, this is where that trope came from. Like, you know, mm-hmm. oh, this is this is how we've got to this point where, you know, uh, we have these cities that have got all these uh, mixed up ethnicities and races and languages. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, oh, I, you know, I saw this in a game and I was kind of wondering where they came up with this idea. And it's like, oh, it came back from this idea, you know, book from the 1980s or from a movie from the 1980s. And I think for me reading the discourse like you said it's not that big of a surprise that this game is just kind of that stuff regurgitated <laughs> um but i could see you know like you said uh how somebody who is into kind of more uh modern takes on cyberpunk could be disappointed right. by that like the game actually feels i mentioned the 80s a lot there the game feels very 90s to me mm. Um, in the sense that, you know, you have this friend you begin the game with and the game is clearly working for you because I like the friend and find him endearing. But he's 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 either Central American or just like Hispanic American and he says pendejo and other words that even I know. Um, these are the only Spanish words he ever uses are just super obvious words that everybody knows already in a way that you've seen happen in a movie and people are like effing and blinding and using bad language in a way that isn't even remotely edgy at all. Um I think someone who made the game maybe thought it was, you know, and and so I think the game, I don't know, it's I'm I'm surprised by myself because I usually have a low tolerance for that, like oh no, can't be doing, can't be dealing with this, but for whatever reason, and maybe it's revisiting my '90s self, you know, if you really liked The Matrix or um, you hung out with a guy who wore a leather jacket that went to his ankles and didn't think it was weird or whatever, um, maybe that's why I'm okay with it. But I could see somebody bouncing off it that way, not even a gameplay thing or anything else, just like. I can't be having these characters, you know, you're almost waiting for them to look at the camera and go, I just said, I just said the F word. Yeah. There's that kind of vibe to it. <laughs> kind of like an and early, I, early Grand Theft Auto game or something like yeah, that. Yeah, kind of. And, um, and now this is all based on a, on, you know, about, a, I played about an hour, hour and a half, went to bed. Well, you're an um, expert as far as I'm concerned. I'm an expert. Oh yeah, exactly. By internet standards, I'm an expert. Um, I don't know, but, uh, it's like any game, especially these big games. It's like Valhalla versus Odyssey, right? Like mm-hmm. at some point it gets challenging. Why is Odyssey, like why do you yourself, and, and me too, why do we enjoy Odyssey more than Valhalla? At some point it's like, you know, at the end of the day, the ingredients mixed together better for one game than the other. Yeah. Um, what I'm intrigued to see about Cyberpunk is, will that be something that varies person to person even more than it usually does? Um, and then you have this whole added thing of, you know, it's 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 a real disgrace that critics, especially critics who are in any way not, you know, who are perceived as being, I don't know, politically left or whatever, or whatever the case might be, SJW, whatever, people are being targeted and that really sucks and it's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also an extreme example of this divergence between a growing critique, critic, cr- critics class and, you know, I don't know, meat and potatoes type gamers Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, films and dealing with that for a long time. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's just where we are in video game criticism, anyway. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Um, so last topic I wanted to bring up uh, was uh, today is uh, again the tenth of uh, December, and it is 
the eve of the uh, Game Awards, uh, hosted by Jeff Keighley. Uh, so these are awards that have been going on for, I think, the past handful of years. And, um, you know, these are just one of many different uh, Game Awards as you see uh, online. But, you know, it seems like this uh, this show has gotten a lot more attention, is kind of centralizing a lot of you know, what we consider to be the best games of the year, at least in the popular sense, you might say, not for niche publications like our own. Um, (laughs) But uh, I just kind of wanted to run through, you know, given the sense that uh, this is kind of where people think games are. uh, It's interesting to me that so many of the nominees for this show uh, are history games. Uh, So the game of the year category includes Ghost of Tsushima and Hades. Uh, The games for impact uh, category, which I think is uh, used to be called the Games for Change category. I'm not sure. But the Games for Impact category includes uh, Through the Darkest of Times, uh, made by Paint Bucket Games, which, you know, adapts the history of uh, resistance to Nazi Germany. And then uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla is nominated for Best Action Adventure Game, along with Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, and then CK3, uh, unsurprisingly, is nominated for best uh, sim or strategy game and you know i bring this up not necessarily to have a huge discussion about who should win these categories but i just think it's interesting that so many of these categories are filled with games that depict historical time periods or deal with historical uh themes and topics like hades for instance and so it just goes to show that you know when you're talking about history games you're often talking about the very heart at which people consider gaming in general, right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like this niche, uh, off to the side topic. It's something that people kind of think of as part and parcel of video games is history. Yeah, and like those big games, especially. I mean, you know, you you have to follow the money at some point. There's really not that many Assassin's Creed fans who just kind of you know suffer through the history parts. So they can get to whatever you know. Um, the huge corporations up to in the present or near present. Yeah, I'm sure there are some, but I doubt it. So um, Ubisoft would have given up on the whole concept a long time ago if the money wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So the audience, you know, wants it. Um, I think it's vindication. People like us because we were like, we're not alone. We knew it. So we knew that people <laughs> like to do this kind of stuff. Um, and that, and Ghost of Tsushima is another example. And I think that you know it got criticised uh, in certain sections when it came out. And as I said earlier, I don't you know. I disagree to some extent with some of those critiques and everything else, but there was a conversation about it. But like that game didn't even have to bother to do what it did. It didn't mm-hmm. have to try and mm-hmm. set itself in the 13th century. Like they could have, 15 years ago, for example, you would just got some kind of a sword fighting game, mm-hmm. um, and they would have just moved on. That's what those games were actually, 20 and 30 years ago. You know, yeah, like katakana and stuff like that. You know, yeah. So. And I think you know it gives argument to the idea of history being as an important marketing tool for these games you know uh, developers know that historical topics are really popular and they attempt to use that kind of appeal to authenticity in selling these games and i would say you know on the one hand you could look at that as uh, a naked commercial ploy you know just to get people to buy Mm -hmm. the game but at the same time um, i often feel especially with assassin's creed uh, that they really do often go out of their way to depict historical time periods and to do so in very many cases in complicated ways. You know, why does there need to be a discovery tour mode for these games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
why I spent so much time with the uh, databases within these games. Um, you know, I think you could say, well, this is part and parcel of the marketing for the game to get people to buy it. But at the same time, Matt, that's a lot of work to, to do just for marketing. Right. Um, so right. I think that, uh, historians and other people interested in the past and encouraging people to consider the past, they could benefit from the work that's being done by these major developers, you know, um, if, if only to just get people interested, uh, in the historical time period that's being depicted. Yeah. It's tough, you know, when you're in graduate school, which, um, many of the listeners I hope did not have to experience, um, <laughs> It depends on the person, right? Some people in graduate school really want to impress everybody and show how much they know and everything. And and sometimes some of it is true. Some of it is older people in academia who really kind of have this sense of like, if you're having fun, something has gone wrong. There are people <laughs> like that. There are people like that for sure. Yeah. Um, and in graduate school, I think that's get, that gets accelerated because you don't want to be seen to have a fun or whatever. Um, but I think there are lessons for us uh, to be thinking about, right, history is popular. Why is it popular? Um, and what can I be doing? And sometimes it's a case of just relaxing a little bit, you know, in the classroom, you know. So, like, people are interested in whether it's Vikings headgear or <laughs> or the things they wore. These are the minutiae that unless you're a very specific type of cultural historian where that's all you write about, you typically instinctively don't want to talk about it. It's like, well, I don't really care about their swords. Can we talk about, you know, why, um, you know, why they went to England or something? Um, so there's things like someone like me to think about, right, how can I, am I overlooking something? Am I making a mistake? You know, um, if I have students, if I have this one person who's vocally saying, I want to talk about such a battle or whatever the case might be, um, does that person represent eight more people in the room who actually, who are interested in that? And how do I use that to, to help them get to where I am? Which is, but this is why it's cool they went to England or whatever. Or better still, the next time I teach it, maybe I'll talk more about that battle or clothing or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think it's it's exciting. And it's exciting to have all these options. It's crazy. Like, I think of games that aren't even out yet that have been in early access, like Old World. Um, and uh, what's the, um, sorry, what's the game by the people who made it, Endless, the Endless Games who have the civilization style oh, game called uh, Humankind? Humankind, right? yes, yeah. So there's, so 2021 is also looking pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we'll have to look forward to more indie games that depict mm -hmm. historical time periods. Uh, you know, I know, for instance, I have still not gotten to uh, Inkle Studios' Pendragon game, uh, which they were nice enough to send me a review copy of. Um, I still haven't gotten to Iron Harvest. Uh, right. I still haven't gotten to Empire of Sin, uh, even though that game in particular is right up my wheelhouse as a historian. Um, right. So it's just it just goes to show that this relationship between history and video games or digital games is not going away anytime soon and it is it's central to understanding modern gaming is this relationship um so i don't know it's very exciting it's it's a good time uh, to be in historical games uh even though we're in the midst of a pandemic maybe especially because we're in the pandemic it's a good time to be <laughs> revisiting uh previous historical <laughs> time periods they're maybe not so terrible you know, I, I was thinking about this with relation to AC Valhalla. I was like, I don't know. You know, the Vikings, uh, not so bad. You know, they didn't have to wear masks. They could go and see I their know, friends. Yeah. They had big parties. Yeah, that's like, oh, I know. Could be worse, you know. Oh, uh, I know. Any depiction of a group of people together in a room now just makes me, you know, I want to tear up. 
Oh. You know, or move to South Dakota, I guess. But no, I think it would be better to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh. oh, man. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to end things here. Uh, but I did want to uh, mention that we will, uh, John and I will be back uh, next week, I think, uh, with some sort of podcast related to you know, history game of the year. And hopefully in the intervening time, I'll have some time myself to play some more games. I know John has played quite a few of these, or at least, uh, you know, uh, played an hour or so, which of course, as we know, a cyberpunk playing an hour of game makes <laughs> yeah. you a complete expert on every yes. facet of it. So that's correct. Yeah. So we'll be back <laughs> next week, but John, uh, until then, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Bob. It's always fun. Uh, and, to you, the listener, thank you for joining us. Again, hopefully you're staying safe uh, and healthy uh, wherever you might be listening to this. Uh, if you enjoy our work at History Respawn, please check out our archive on historyrespawn.com. Uh, and if you really like our work, uh, consider supporting the show uh, by going to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.